Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, the founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm, and we welcome you to our new podcast series. Today's podcast is going to discuss Coming to America, the Basics Overview of Immigration Law Options. Well, let's go back and try to understand who is allowed to actually come in, live, and work in the United States. It's U.S. citizens or U.S. nationals. That means people who are born in the U.S. or children who are born to U.S. citizens, or in certain other circumstances, maybe if the grandparents are U.S. citizens. For most of us others, you have to go through a legal process in order to come to the U.S. either temporarily to visit or to work or study or live permanently in America. The U.S. Department of State administers the work of the U.S. embassies and consulates around the world. The consular officials grant visas to citizens of foreign countries to come and either visit or live in the United States on a temporary or a permanent basis. You then have a separate agency, not the Department of State, but the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, or USCIS, which is now part of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, that administers the immigration and citizenship process for non-citizens who are already physically present within the U.S. borders. Okay, so now we understand the overview. Now we're going to go into the temporary stay, commonly referred to in immigration law as the alphabet soup because of the different letters of the English alphabet that is assigned to the different non-immigrant visa categories. Right starting from the alphabet A right to through alphabet V, uh, we have different visa forms that are applicable. But let's look at the more commonly used uh, visas that people use to enter the U.S. The most common one is the B-1 or B-2. The B-1 is the visitor for business. When a person comes in to attend a conference or a meeting or for medical treatment, it's referred to as a B-1. B-2 is when you come in as a tourist for pleasure to do, you know, to visit Disney World with or visit family or friends or attend a wedding or a graduation. So besides the B-1, B-2, which is the most commonly used non-immigrant visa, you have others like, for example, the students who come in on an F-1 as a full-time student or an M-1, which is a vocational student coming for a trade school, for example. You also have students who come in as exchange visitors, the J-1 visas for research, international research scholars and foreign medical graduates who come in on J-1. Very common with visiting prof professors or au pairs or camp counselors. Now you also have temporary work-related visas. The temporary work visas have common ones. The most common one that many of you may be familiar with is called the H-1B for a professional worker who is in a specialty occupation. For companies with large multinational branches or subsidiaries or affiliates around the world, you have the L-1A or L-1B, sometimes referred to as an intra-company transferee or a multinational executive manager 
transferee, senior executive, managerial level, or a specialized knowledge worker. That's the L1A and L1B. You also have, for the lesser skilled, what we call the essential workers. You have the H2A for the agricultural workers, and you have the temporary and seasonal workers, the H2Bs. A lot of landscaping companies and construction companies sometimes use the H2Bs. They also have a quota like the H1Bs. And then you have the H3, which are the trainees. The person has to show, the employer, the business, or the company has to show that the person that they are bringing cannot get the similar training in that person's home country, and that person will definitely plan to return back to the home country after completing the trainee program in the U.S. You have something for O and P, which are the athletes, the artists, the entertainers. You have religious workers, the priests and the missionaries, even the people who are like uh, acting as you know nuns or sisters or whatever, working in a religious organization who can actually use not the RN kind of a visa to come in as a nurse, but can actually use the R visa, which is a religious category visa. And then the other commonly used category, uh, most commonly used are what are called treaty traders and treaty investors, the E1 and E2 visas, applicable to many, many countries with which the United States has a treaty of friendship or trade or commerce with. But you need to remember that a lot of countries do not have such a treaty or trade of commerce. For example, India does not have any such treaty with the U.S., so citizens or nationals of India, for example, are not eligible for the E1, E2 uh, visa, but citizens of, for example, Vietnam or Korea or China or you know Canada or many many other countries, UK, etc., commonly get E1, E2 visas. Canadians, by the way, also get the TN or the Trade NAFTA visa, which is completely separate. In order to obtain any one of these non-immigrant temporary kinds of status, either to get the visa from the consulate or to get it from USCIS from within the U.S. If you're interested in coming in on that category, you need to show that you are legally admissible into the United States, meaning that you don't have any kind of a past immigration violation, you don't have a medical communicable disease, uh, that you don't have a criminal record, for example. So you have to show that you're legally admissible. You need to show, second, that you are eligible for the temporary visa classification for example, if you're coming as a student, you need to show that you have got admission into the school, that you've completed a certain level of your high school education abroad to pursue a bachelor's degree. Or if you're coming to the U.S. for a master's degree, you have to show that you completed a four-year bachelor's degree or the equivalent from your home country and can obtain full admission, full admission to pursue the U.S. master's degree. Or if you're coming as an H-1B professional worker, that you have a valid job offer in the U.S. and the valid education. Third, you or your sponsor in the U.S. must show that you have a legitimate bona fide job or financial resources that will fund your stay in the U.S. so that there's no risk of you becoming a financial liability to the American government or to the U.S. citizen, to other U.S. residents or citizens. And finally, when you apply for a non-immigrant visa, you do need to establish that you intend not to stay in the U.S., that you have a permanent home in your home country that you don't plan to abandon. 
for example, that you have family members or a permanent home, you have assets, you have business, whatever. The one exception that could apply is for an H-1B or an L-1, which enjoys dual intent under the doctrine of dual intent. So that's a whole lot of information to give, but it's very, very useful. It's a very broad overview uh, on the different classes, classification, the agencies involved, the, uh, the common kinds of visas, and what you need to show. But once you decided you're going to apply, what about your family members, for example, your spouse or your children? For m many non-immigrant temporary visa classifications, the spouse and the dependents are allowed to accompany the principal into the U.S. For example, the H-1B person, principal, can bring the, the spouse, husband or wife, and children who are dependents on the H-4. However, for B-1 and B-2, each person needs to individually qualify for the B-1 or B-2 because there's no dependent category that automatically applies in most cases. Some temporary work visas even allow the dependent spouse to work. For example, you have the L-1 or the E-1 spouses who are allowed to get work authorization, which unfortunately does not apply to H-4 spouses. While in the United States, if the temporary worker decides to extend the stay, the spouse's stay is not automatically extended. Many people unfortunately think that just if I extend my H-1, my wife or husband's H-4 and my children's H-4 will be extended. No. USCIS requires each person to apply and file for their own application, pay the government the filing fee, wait, and ensure that it's approved. We have seen this as a very, very common problem. It's very serious because it completely ruins the person's life. So you probably need to consult an immigration attorney if you're not familiar or somebody forgot to file an extension for you. So that's a broad overview on the non-immigrant visa categories. We really hope that that's provided you some insight on the non-immigrant visa classifications or temporary classifications. Next, we move on to the immigrant classification. The immigrant classification is a desire by the person or the family to stay permanently in the United States. To come in as an immigrant or a green card holder or permanent resident of the United States, you can qualify if you have, for example, you're claiming a refugee or an asylee kind of status, or you have a family member that is sponsoring you, for example, a spouse, husband, wife, or parent, or a parent, an adult child applying for the parents, a U.S. citizen applying for the parents, or employment, meaning you have a U.S. employer that says, yes, I'm willing to file the green card or permanent residency papers for you. Or you can apply under what's called the Diversity Visa Lottery Program, where every year approximately 50,000 people can apply on this diversity visa, and the U.S. Department of State has lots of information on that on their website as well. And then there are lots of special immigrant categories, like the religious workers, like people, certain um, people like business entrepreneurs, et cetera, who are eligible for the green card based on the special immigrant categories. So what are the common paths to immigrate to the U.S.? A U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident 
relative will file an immigrant petition for you to immigrate to the U.S. This is in the family-based classification. After the relative files the immigrant petition, you have to wait your turn in line, sometimes for a few months and sometimes for several years, depending on the classification, the relationship, and whether it's considered an immediate relative under immigration law or a preference petition. And depending on that, the process can take really long. The uh, people who can get it almost immediately are immediate relatives of a U.S. citizen who don't have to wait. Immediate relatives are a U.S. citizen spouse, the parents of a U.S. citizen, or children under the age of 21 years of a U.S. citizen. So that's the family-based permanent residency application. Next, we'll briefly describe the employment-based immigrant petition. For an employment-based application, you generally need a U.S. employer who will file the petition for the person, for you in this case, if you're the person intending to immigrate to the U.S. Most employment-based petitions require a labor certification before the immigrant petition can be filed. To obtain the labor cert, the employer has to test the local job market to ensure that there are no available or willing U.S. workers who are able to perform the job. Now, this sounds really, really difficult and complicated. It is. It is to some extent, but it's not impossible to overcome. At the Murthy Law Firm, we do thousands of such cases all the time. Um, but you do have to satisfy the Department of Labor that the employer has gone through a good faith testing, bona fide testing of the labor market. Next, the U.S. company files the immigrant petition, or commonly referred to as the I-140. And sometimes after that, the person has to wait for years, again, based on the preference categories, before the person finally obtains the approval of the I-485 in order to actually get the green card if within the U.S. or the immigrant visa if the person is abroad. Uh, there's an exception where people can get the green card very fast through an employer. For example, if you're in the employment-based first preference category because you're an outstanding professor, researcher, or if you're considered a person who is in the extraordinary ability because you have a Nobel Prize, you're truly in the top, top tier, very top of your field of endeavor, or you're in a national interest waiver case, or you're an EB4 religious worker, a minister, etc. But other than that, many people end up waiting sometimes for months or years. Um, some people often ask us, hey, are there ways I can just file for myself, like it's called self-sponsored petitions? And the answer is yes. You could file for yourself if you are an EB1 extraordinary ability kind of person, which I just referred very briefly to, you're renowned, world-renowned in a field such as the arts and sciences or scientific research, etc., or you have a large amount of money to invest and you can do an EB-5 investor case where you invest minimum a million bucks and hire 10 full-time jobs of people who are not related to you, or you hire, um, you pay only half a million dollars in a targeted employment area, 
or in an economically backward area, or if you have significant accomplishments in a field of endeavor that is of the benefit to the U.S., also referred to as an EB2 national interest waiver case. Okay, so we've described the family base, we've described an employment base, we've just described self-sponsored petitions to immigrate to the U.S., and finally, before we wind up this particular podcast session, we'll mention briefly the diversity visa lottery program. Each year, and remember, for USCIS, the fiscal year starts on October 1st and ends on September 30th, the USCIS conducts a random drawing of individuals who have entered and filled out an application under the visa lottery program. Again, like the other uh, application that we mentioned about E1-E2s where Indian nationals are not allowed, because there are already so many people from India in the U.S., certain countries like India, Canada, U.K. are not allowed to participate in the diversity visa lottery program, but citizens of many, many other countries are allowed to participate uh, as long as they don't have high rates of immigration into the U.S. So if you do, please submit the application so that you can get a chance, and then you and the entire family can get a green card faster and cheaper and quicker than through most other categories. Look out in the future for our future podcasts where we will continue to feature other basics of immigration law as well as fascinating examples of cases that we have encountered and tackled here at the Muthi Law Firm. It's always a pleasure for us to help and guide you. We hope that this overview of the podcast which is between 15 and 20 minutes, will give you a really good overview of the different options that you can consider. It would always be an honor and a pleasure for any of us or all of us at the Murthy Law Firm to help you with your immigration processing. Thank you so much for investing your time. Have a fabulous day. From Sheila Murthy and all of us in the Murthy Law Firm, we look forward to helping you soon. Bye-bye.